Before you close that hymnal, if you haven't done it yet, look down in the bottom left corner of the page and just note who wrote that song. Yeah, Martin Luther. And the tune, Wittenberg 1524, uh, edited later, uh, but it says adapted from uh, Latin 13th century. Luther's hymns, he wrote them all. He wrote the tunes all, but some of the tunes he took what he probably thought were the most catchy Gregorian chants. Huh? And then he, he put them into something of a chorus. So you notice how there was part of that song that the words were different and there was a part that the words were the same. And when the words were the same, you're like, I got this part, right? And when they're different, you're like, I'm not so sure. Yeah. But what that happened or led to was when they're teaching people to sing in medieval Wittenberg and there's no hymnals. This is all by ear. Like you listen and you pick it up. He built in that chorus. It's literally a chorus, uh, the way we would think of a chorus. Our hymns don't have choruses. Um, that's a unique feature. I just want to call your attention to it. I, I think our goal is not to always sing brand new difficult hymns, but sermon hymns often are that way. And you sang it very well, by the way, St. Paul. You're, you're an incredible singing church. Uh, this morning, we're going to spend time in every one of our texts Ideally, if we can't get enough time for Colossians, then we'll, we'll leave it for your, your piety later. But uh, if you would like to kind of follow my suggestion, it's find your way to the Pew Bible for Isaiah 51. That's page 612. And then rely on the bulletin for the rest of it, if you like, unless you want to turn. Unless you want to turn. We're going to start with Jesus. So that'd be the bulletin for you, uh, if you want to make it easy. Chapter 9 of Matthew, uh, verse 18 and following. And the setup here is we're going to Christ the King Sunday next week. We're, we're on our path remembering that the world is going to burn in fire and that this is a good thing because we're going through that fire like iron, right? And we're coming out better than steel and gold. And this is because we're inside the ark of the body of Jesus Christ. And so Christ the King Sunday is a little less like doom and darkness for us and a whole lot more like the return of the king if you're a Tolkien fan, right? Or maybe maybe Armistice Day, you know, that kind of thing, right? And so Christ the King comes to us this week in a very simple little vignette, two stories put together. You barely get it if you're reading fast. You blink and see that and not see what a what a what a nut this is. What a little riddle. We're not going to pull up everything we could about it and all the way Matthew could influence it, but I want you to see how both of these people, we can call them characters, but they were real human beings, right? These are brother and sister in Christ, in fact. You'll meet them someday. I want you to see how they see Jesus, all right? So, so here we go. Uh, you know, he's speaking. He's in a, a debate before. We're going to leave that behind. But there comes up a ruler. What does that mean? Well, in the Greek, it's going to be something like, uh, you might think of him like a CEO, 
right? He's a guy who's got a lot of power somewhere. He's over something, yeah, but he's not, he's not technically like a king or anything. He's not even maybe a baron, but maybe a mayor, you know, a village elder, I, who knows? But he's got money and he's got people. And it doesn't sound like he's Jewish, but he might be. I don't know. You know, I'd have to look into that one more. But he certainly comes, and the first thing he says to Jesus, I mean, just out of the crowd, my daughter died, like today. And he doesn't seem to be quite as bothered about it as you would think, because he just says, now you come, and she'll live. Now, what I want you to see is his utter conviction that Jesus heals people if you ask. He's just utterly convinced. Jesus, I know she's dead, <laughs> but you're you. And Jesus goes with him. Yeah? Uh, so do his disciples. Verse 20, and then you have this other little story smashed in the middle, a little sandwich. A woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. A oh, uh, number of things going on there. Flow of blood, normal to the woman's custom, not normal in this case, 12 years straight. I think most of us who are grown up now can imagine what a frustrating thing that would be and how many doctors you might go to see. And 12 years, uh, a, a good number here. You know, she stands for Israel. She stands for all the people. She stands for the tribes. She stands for us then as well, the church. She is a woman who is unclean in every way with a holy number and a special number from God. And unclean in every way, According to the Old Testament law, this woman is just not allowed anywhere near worship ever for 12 years. But she can get close to Jesus. No one was watching the temple that close. Which temple, right? And she knows, she knows the prophecy. She knows he comes with healing in his wings, the tassel on the side of his cloak, which another gospel will tell us she touched. It's called a wing in Hebrew. If I can touch his wings. And she does. I will be made well, she believes. Again, she believes getting near Jesus means health. Jesus turns around. He's like, yeah, you better believe it. Your faith has made you well, given you health. It can rightly be translated as saved you too. So this is like all of it. And I'm not then teaching you to believe right now that if you happen to have a life-ending illness, pray to Jesus and guaranteed miracles. No, that's not what this is. Healing in his hands showed itself when they were pierced for your transgressions, wounded for your iniquities. And if you can imagine that hand of God now that used to come with a hammer because of sin, now he comes instead with an open palm to grab you. And it does feel strange as you go into the wound. So let me tell you, he presses down, you go right through into his hand as he grabs and pulls you out. Now you're one with him. More important than the cancer in your body is the cancer in your soul. And I promise you, he answers every prayer to heal that. Day by day, we go, be of good cheer, he tells you she's well from that hour. She can go back to church. God bless her. And they go to the ruler's house, verse 23, and the flute players, sounds like a band. This is more like, mm, 
I don't know, have you heard ancient Asian music ever? Uh, twanging and gonging and loud noises. It, it's not what we would call melody. Uh, and you know that because of the wailing and the noisy crowd that goes with it. Uh, their funerals were generally about um, not reserving any emotions, right? Our funerals, I don't know the history, but our funerals are about not showing any emotions, right? It's weird, actually. Um, theirs were about not hiding a single one. And so basically, you come in and you just yell for a while. Ah! You cry, wail, and you know, mom's doing it, sister's doing it, everyone's doing it. You're done wailing, you go away for a while. The women wail for like three days, though. They just keep going, right? The guys kind of move on, let it happen, right? And I'm not saying let's start it at St. Paul, <laughs> but I'm saying there's a wisdom here to humanity that we don't even believe in anymore, and that's a bit dangerous. In any case, he goes into that space sees them all, and he does something rather dismissive. He's like, yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on, everybody. Hold on, spread apart. She's not dead. <laughs> and that's what everyone does. They laugh at him. They laugh at him. And what I want you to see again is the ruler, the ruler has a really interesting moment. All his friends and family are scoffing at the rabbi prophet who he just brought in. And he can either be shamed into saying, that was stupid, she's dead, which would be the obvious thing any normal person would do. They'd realize they'd sold themselves to some guru snake oil salesman. And they would say, there's no way he can do this. Obviously. But he doesn't. He makes all of his people get out of the house. And then Jesus, I mean, it's just in passing. Oh, and he raises her from the dead. Okay, then on goes the story. Healing in his hands. Now, Isaiah chapter 51 is going to bring us a prayer based upon this belief that Jesus is the king with healing in his hands. And then God's answer. Two times of collapse, which are all times if you're paying attention, but there's bigger and smaller waves. But let me just again say it's always refractive, right? So if your country's not falling apart, your family can be. If your family's not falling apart, your country can be. Times of collapse, things fall apart. What's that like to live in this age when things fall apart, knowing the king has healings in his hands? Well, the prayer that starts off, uh, Isaiah 51, verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Jesus Christ. And arm of the Lord, arm of Jesus Christ. That prayer is a fervent belief that things are not the way they should be, but Jesus can do something about it when he wants to. Right? So I, I, I'm going to say it. I'm going to even get down a little bit. The mic's going to make it loud. But like Isaiah is the prophet. Awake! Awake! Arm of Christ! That's what he's, that's what he's saying, okay? He's pleading because his country is falling apart in ways we can't even quite, like they're, they're sacrificing to false gods on hills with children in. We got it hidden behind medicine, right? Uh, they're doing it out in front. Big cow statues burning stuff. It's, it's wicked. He's praying, God, don't, Jesus, don't you see it? Didn't you part the Red Sea? That's where he's going to go. Awake as in ancient days, in generations of old, are you not 
the arm that cut Rahab in pieces and wounded the serpent, verse 10, same thing, you who dried up the sea, right? A reference to Exodus, a reference to the, the sea parting and the slave people becoming free, going through death as Pharaoh's hosts and all their enemies are destroyed, but life is brought forth on the other side. And so he's asking, oh, wake up, like this is your kingdom, God. This isn't a bunch of people on migration. This is your kingdom, Isaiah says. And Israel is falling and Judah will go into exile soon, soon enough. And he's asking why. And so if you've ever sat in a congregation and wondered why it's less full than it used to be, or maybe watched a school, closed for reasons you just can't seem to figure out. Your heart knows what it means to say, wake up, God. But maybe you weren't free to say it, and that's what this text is here to give you. You don't need to be ashamed of being mad that God won't answer because you can't see it. What you do want to do is believe he has a better reason, okay? So I'm bad, I don't see it, I do know I'm wrong, (laughs) right? I know he does see it. Jesus has a better plan. The bit about cutting Rahab apart is a fun detail I don't want to miss. It's like one of my favorite nuggets. Rahab is like an Akkadian or or pre-Noatic term. It's like an ancient, ancient, ancient word for the serpent who lives at the bottom of the sea. Leviathan sometimes, right? But then like Tiamat, actually, if you know that reference. Um, uh, And you might even connect it to almost any old, old mythological starting god. Like the first god is always some sort of underwater serpent in one way or another. And Rahab would be like, you know, how the ancient Assyrians might talk about that god, right? And this is like, so Jesus, aren't you the one who like just cut that one in half? Again, you're worried about it. Nothing to you to split the waters. And so when he splits the sea, he's not cutting the body of the devil in half, but he kind of symbolically is. He's showing the devil's power, the sea, destruction, has nothing in it, right? But he can just make it go aside. And he does that for the people. You dried up the sea. You made the depths a road for the redeemed, those purchased to cross over. So the ransomed of the Lord, and here verse 11, is this, is this the prayer? I'm praying, await God, do this, because then the ransomed, us, this will happen. I know that to be true. That's a fair prayer. Or is this the response to the prayer? Response, the ransom to the Lord shall return because I am God, he'll say next. Right? I, I don't know which way to take this verse. Um, it goes both ways well, poetry. Um, but it's a promise. It's a promise either way. The ransomed of Jesus Christ shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So whatever, why God, I don't understand, I'm angry, please no more. Ha! The answer is you shall come in comfort to the heights of Zion in the name of Jesus Christ. I, even I, am he who comforts you, he says. It's a strict promise. Alleluia, strict promise. Nothing to do, only to believe. I, even I, says the Almighty God, comfort you. Who are you then 
to be afraid of a man who will die. I love that verse. I love that verse. Almost all my fears come back to man. I, I figured that out a while ago. It's hard to put in practice. All my fears come back to man. And the thing about a man dying is, like, on one hand, it doesn't do any good, right? So here's some guy. I'll give you like one of my worst nightmares. Here's some guy threatening to flay me. I've, I've thought through martyrdom a few times. So threatening to flay me, right? And the guy's face to face with me. I'm going to be afraid of that guy, right? Like, wouldn't you be? <laughs> um, and, and yet, why, who am I to be afraid of this man who will die? Well, th- how would that possibly be that I could not be afraid? Here, here's how it is. I would know with full conviction that whatever he does to me, coming back on him like he can't even imagine, and I'm getting bonus points the other direction for free. Right? So as much as he skins me, I got like super skin later. Right? Whatever it is, God pays back double and more. And this isn't like a tit for tat. This is just the promise. Like you can let it all go because more is just coming. That's the beauty of the goodness of Jesus Christ. There is nothing to fear from men because they will all get theirs every single time. And you're going to get yours and yours is grace. Yours is grace. Who are you to be afraid of a son of man who will be made like the grass, right? Uh, I think the Proverbs say, in the day that they perish, all their plans die. I've known more than a few men who had a lot going on and then died and then it all went away. I think about what that means for my own life. I ponder it. No. Is what I'm going to do all go away? I didn't become a pastor because I wanted my work to last. I think most men just do want their works to last. But I do know this, that my faith is not going away. My religion is not going away. The Bible is not going away. And therefore, any work that I do with that on it, ultimately, never goes away. That isn't just for pastors. It's for all of us. Let the word be with you in your task, and you'll find amazing things beginning to happen. He says in verse 13, you forget Jesus, your maker, who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he was prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The armies of Assyria that conquered northern Israel and then got all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. That's who he's talking about. And yeah, I mean, this was a, a nasty army. If you're in any way like powerful in the country you're in and you fight against Assyria, you are basically stripped before everybody, wounded or tattooed in some way, pierced with things like hooks in your nose that are attached to chains, and then made to walk back to their capital, Nineveh, behind a truck with a bunch of other naked prisoners just like you pulled by the nose. You'd be afraid of that, right? I'd be afraid of that. Fearing the oppressor every day, he says. But what he chides us for is we don't realize the only reason there's an oppressor is because he let it happen. There's never destruction that comes without Jesus doing it. He lets it happen. And indeed, the good question is why? And there's there's more than one answer. I I sat at a table last night with a couple earnest young men who'd come to see Dr. Kuntz talk, and, and we were talking about Kind of the, I don't know, the, the shabby state of interchurch politics. And I, I mean, within Missouri Synod, but I also just mean more outside of the Missouri Synod. But I, I, I said to him something I really think it's worth saying publicly, which is like, if the Missouri Synod, if Lutheranism 
is not able to speak the word of God clearly to the world around us, but we think we are, but we continue to shrink. Maybe the wrath of God is against us. I think that's worth asking rather than dismissing as a question, I don't know, every day usually, right? Like fear the Lord a touch. And I could suggest to you a list of, I don't know, five or six things that never happened until the 1960s in churches ever. And then in spite of us being a conservative church, we still did them with everybody else. I'm not saying those things are one-to-ones. I think the world is a complex place. But I, I do believe that the fury of the oppressor has been felt in our midst. And that as we've seen the struggle to what, keep a school open, what, keep a budget going, you pick where, in your own life too, we forget that Jesus is the one that gives the money and takes the money. He gives the flood, he takes the flood. Right, Job, he gives, he takes. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. You forget, he says. Yeah. And so verse 14, it says, the captive exile hastens to be loosed so he should not die in the pit and his bread should not fail. So you imagine now you're not got the hook in the nose, but you're in exile. You're, you're, you're in chains. You're going to be slaved. And, and everything that you can think about is how you're going to get free or not get hurt. But you haven't prayed once. That's what he's saying. The captive exile, they're all out there afraid. We're all worried. Something's going to go wrong. Have we stopped and asked God out loud in Jesus' name for it not to? Or is it more like, I think about it, I worry about it, I think that's a prayer? Because, well, you're not acting like it's a prayer. You're acting like it's a fleeting thought, like God won't get involved. So again, I'm not saying every healing you ever ask for, like I, I cut my finger with my new pocket knife yesterday. I fully expect it to heal. <laughs> I expect God to heal it in time with normative creation. But I do also believe every morning to wake up with a soul that's going to let any part of this body go to collapse now, fearlessly, because he has risen. Alleluia. I put my words in your mouth, verse 16. That's not just for pastors. I cover you with the shadow of my hand. Again, imagine the wound on his hand as he covers you. The blood all over it. That's good stuff. So that I can plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth. This will get into the Colossians text in a moment where Jesus is a new heavens and a new earth. And we're all going to be part of it. In fact, he's the firstborn from the dead, first fruit. We're the firstborn from faithlessness, first fruit. So the human Christian is a special kind of firstborn from the dead already, right now, before you get your body back. Yeah. Plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the new earth, great stuff there, end of the world. Say to Zion, you are my people. Ah, such comforting words. That God says you are his people. With a few moments left, let's close it with Colossians then. From the king with healing in his hands uh, to trying to wake up God and finding out God's trying to wake you up. Now some blood and wisdom mixed with patience to close the morning. Paul writes to Colossa, which it seems he hasn't visited, uh, for this reason, also since the day we heard it, that is that you became a church, 
we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Uh, three of five keywords from Proverbs 1, verse 2. Uh, knowledge, which is to remember. Right? Wisdom, which is to see. And understanding, which is to find between. Uh, uh, Christianity prays, promises that you will be filled with this. You'll be filled with this. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord. That doesn't mean earning justification. Goodness gracious, let's just leave that in the dust. We're saved by grace through faith alone. To walk worthy of the Lord is, is what I've just been saying to you. To walk and actually be free in your head, in your heart. Worthy doesn't mean doing more. It means worrying less. And not as a work, but just because finally you don't have to. You just don't have to. There's, there's no effort. It's, it's, you finally put it down, frankly. I mean, I wish I could, I could. I don't always do it, by the way. I don't put it down. I hold it all the time, right? But he's talking about growth here. Growth. Fully pleasing him. We know this in Christ. Being fruitful in every good work. And here's the growth. Increasing in the knowledge, the memory of who God is. So that when you face the trials, you remember who God is. When as a child or as a young convert, you, you can't or you don't. Or perhaps there are seasons where you don't because you stopped reading, right? Increasing in the memory of who God is, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for patience. So his power is not flexing. No. It's just receiving with endurance. That's how he beat the cross right there, receiving with endurance. Long suffering. The other word there with it in the New King James. With joy. And you're like, how's that go together? You know, long suffering with joy? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He knew as Mary cried, who Mary will be. He knew as John watched on, who John is now, right? He knew you would be baptized for that joy. Now given to you to see in the future of your children, your friends, your brothers and sisters at church, that whatever we endure together, we're going somewhere better together. So then 12, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Qualified us, his work, inheritance from him. Right? It's all gift here. He has delivered, it's a saving word, like the mail though, really, right? You were in a, one place, you got moved to another place. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. I don't need to explain that, do I? In whom, Jesus, we have redemption, that's purchasing power uh, by his blood. And that is the forgiveness or the divorce of our sins from us, that our sins don't count anymore in his sight because we're in his kingdom now. He, it talks about him now, not us. He is the image of the invisible God, which, by the way, is why we can have statues now in the crucifix with Jesus on it. It's a good thing. That, that is the image of the invisible God, the same way that in a creche at Christmas, in the manger, the little baby statue, image of the invisible God. How? Because God, we now know, became a man. And so any picture of a man doing what Jesus did authentically is going to, look like it's going to be 
God at work in a symbol, in a picture. We get the theory of information. It's not that important. The fact is that the truest image, the everlasting image, is him, self, yeah? And that that is impossible because how do you make invisible visible? Look at the man, Jesus crucified. That's how, yeah? And in this godness now, or no, with this godness now, a second thing, it's just a little tricky here. Verse 15 has two things it says Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. And now he's going to talk about what those two things mean. I'll give you the, the short right up front. So image of the invisible God, he's God. And firstborn over all creation, he's the first new man. Right? So he's man. And more than that, he's the first new man. We're all promised to be new men and are new men in our faith. But our bodies don't show it yet. Right? He's the firstborn of that. And it's going to say that here in the rest of this section. You know, by him, all things were created. This is his divinity. Heaven and earth created, right? Visible, invisible, created by him. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. That's kind of fun and leads to chapter two and stuff that he has. But all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist, right? So to use kind of the Nicene Creed argument language, there is never a time when Jesus God was not. There is no time when Jesus does not exist, son of God, right? Uh, There is time when he's not a man and there is time where he's not raised from the dead yet. So he is also then verse 18, the second part, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, God and man, he may have the preeminence that he is the the firstborn. So he comes, Next week, Christ the King, Advent right after, a word that means coming. And all the way, nothing to get too worried about, just another day to walk in the increasing memory that God is for you, not against you. And that even when you're crying out, why? His answer is, I got it. In the name of Jesus, 